All right, while everybody's finding their seat, and we're getting ready, a couple of announcements. First of all, just to remind everybody, we have the Promise Book out in Spanish now, so this is a great opportunity for you. Some of you uh, are around a lot of people for whom Spanish is their primary language. gives you an opportunity also as you go to other places in your life where there are uh, mechanics or waitresses or whomever that you can hand these out. It's an explanation of the gospel, also the importance of confession of sin and categorization of promises. So those are available. Also, last Wednesday, Wednesday a week, Don Tapping went to be with the Lord. And so our prayers are with his mother, Catherine Tapping, and other members of the family. The memorial service will be this Saturday morning here at West Houston Bible Church at 11 o'clock in the morning. Also a reminder that a week from Saturday, on Saturday, May 19th, we're going to have our monthly men's prayer breakfast and deacons meeting. And at this point, it looks like we'll have a special guest speaker. Please try to invite anybody you know, especially if they live in Congressional District 2. That covers most of Spring Branch and goes up, especially up through like the 1960 area, Champions Forest, all up through there, Kingwood, all the way up. I think it goes up a little sliver, goes up north, up towards Livingston. But that is a runoff election on May the 22nd. And that, uh, this next Monday, is the beginning of the early voting period, starting on Monday, I believe Monday is the 14th, through the 18th is early voting. So uh, it's, it's common for people not to show up, especially if it's just one or two people. I don't know if anything else is on the ballot this time. This morning, or at noon today, there was a meeting of the Houston Area Pastors Council, and there was a debate between Kevin Roberts, who's running for the position, as well as uh, Dan Crenshaw. Uh, Dave, uh, Dave Welch, who's the head of the Houston Area Pastors Council, stated that there's about... 700, Bryce, correct me if I'm wrong, about 750, 790,000 people. Is that what it was? Yeah, but that was the number of votes. But there's about 700, 700 to 800,000 who live in the district. At the primary, uh, uh, registered voters, there's about 480,000 registered voters in the district. The primary had 49,000 people vote. That means about 10% of the registered voters or about 5% of those who live in the district voted to determine who would be the congressional representative. A lot of Christians didn't show up to vote. And I say that not because that was stated today, but because that has unfortunately been the trend in this country for a while. If all the Christians would show up and vote as a block, we wouldn't have probably 90% of the problems that we have today. But there are too many who are passive and who are not involved. But we're in a battle. We're in a huge battle, and we are being rolled over. And so it is mandatory for each of us as part of our civic responsibility as a citizen in this nation and as a Christian even more so to do all things to the glory of God, to be informed 
and to get out to vote. So please make it your plan. Now, if you're in one of the other districts, then there, I don't, I'm not sure there's a runoff in other districts, but because uh, uh, Congressman Ted Poe is stepping down, this is a huge election, and we can't allow for this election to go, uh, to go blue. It needs to stay good, solid red for Republican districts. So we need to get out and vote during that period, and Dan will, is uh, willing to come back and uh, speak at the men's prayer breakfast. So anybody you know, invite them. If you know anybody, and I know a lot of you do know some people who go to David Dunn's church up there at Grace Bible Church, invite them to come because they're, if they live up that way, they're probably in District 2 as well. So encourage them to come out. And I believe that is all the announcements that that I have uh, this morning or this evening. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. Those who worship in this dispensation worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. So we'll have a a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we can come together tonight. We need to be refreshed by your word. We need to constantly be reminded of what you have revealed to us. We need to be reminded of your faithfulness, your goodness, your love for us. We need to be reminded that you have provided everything for us and that there is no situation or circumstance or problem that we face in life that you have not already provided us with the solution. And that, Father, we understand that that in this nation, in this uh uh, world in which we live, there are many potential crises, but the restrainer, God the Holy Spirit, restrains the evil that is there. But Father, we have a responsibility too as believers to, in this nation to vote, to be involved in the uh, civic process of the election of our leaders, and to study, investigate, and to choose those who fit biblical criteria, biblical patterns, and who hold to biblical, uh, biblical truth, or as close as we can get. Father, we pray that you would uh, strengthen these men who are running to, to take this congressional slot. We pray that the man who is closely, most closely aligned to the truth of your word will win. And Father, we pray that you might raise up more and more men and women with biblical convictions who will uh, help lead this nation. And Father, we pray for us that as believers, we know that that is not the ultimate solution, but the ultimate solution is transformation of the character of our nation through the Word of God. And that is not something we can control, something we can pray for, something we can influence through our verbal witness as well as through our the witness of our life. Father, as we study tonight, pray that you will help us to understand one of the most significant aspects of the witness of our life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Okay, we started last week as we were looking at 1 Peter 4.8 to talk about what the Bible teaches about love. This love is one of the most misunderstood, one of the most confusing concepts for many people, especially in our age. Love is often confused and frequently confused with sentimentality. It's frequently confused with emotion. In fact, if you look the look up in the dictionary for the meaning of the word love, it will tell you it's an emotion. But that doesn't fit the biblical criteria. In the Bible, emotion is, I mean, love is a mental attitude. It is not an emotion. Emotions ebb and flow. One day you wake up and you don't feel so great and you're kind of grumpy because you didn't sleep enough the night before and you don't have warm, fuzzy feelings about any other members of the human race, especially anyone who talks too loudly or upsets you in the morning. That doesn't have anything to do with biblical love. Biblical love, as we'll see it defined, is being able to do the right thing for the object of your love. Not the right thing in terms of your personal uh, your personal values in the sense that what you want, that would be manipulation. But when you as and I as believers have an external absolute, an external pattern of, of what is right and what is wrong, one that we know we don't always live up to and measure up to, but we are to do that which is right according to that standard, not according to our personal likes and dislikes, our personal whims, our personal preferences. We have an objective standard for love, and that's what the Scripture teaches. We have to look to God and look to His Word to understand what biblical love is all about. First Peter 4.8 is the second command that we see here. The first had to do with prayer. And the mental attitude that surrounded prayer in terms of objectivity, in terms of praying wisely, prudently. And then we looked at this second mandate, which actually flows out of the command that's in the first chapter. I mean, the first verse of, of this paragraph, 4-7. And above all things, we read, have fervent love for one another. That looks like it's a command, but it it is, but it isn't. It's not doesn't use an imperative verb. It picks up the imperative from the previous verse. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sin. So we started looking at this last week, breaking it down. I want to very quickly review what we covered last time, that the idea of being fervent has that idea of something that is unflinching, something that is tenacious, something that is focused, earnest, intentional, passionate, but not in the sense of being emotional, but something that is, is in terms of the focus of your mentality. Some of you are very passionate about certain hobbies. Some of you are passionate about uh, studies related to politics. It's that kind of a passion, a mental focus. Uh, some of you are passionate about sports, and you study sports a lot. And at certain games, you get all emotional. That's a secondary idea. But when we talk about passion in this sense, it's a... Uh, a, a mental attitude, not an outburst of emotion. 
So this is to characterize us. Reminds us of 1 Peter 1.22, that we love one another fervently, same language that Paul used in the, in the beginning of the epistle. And it takes us back to the command that Jesus gives in John 13.34 and 35, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. This is the ultimate nonverbal witness of our life, is the way we love one another. Now, that one another, as we're going to see, relates to other believers. It is not the broad base, same as the broad-based command of Leviticus uh, eighteen nineteen that we're to love our neighbor. Neighbor covers everybody. We talked about that last time when we looked at at Jesus' parable on the Good Samaritan, that your neighbor is anyone that comes within the uh, realm of your life. But this is talking about a higher standard for others who are in the me- who are members of the body of Christ. That you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Then Jesus repeats this. This is all within the upper room uh, discourse. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Notice the pattern is always the love Jesus has for us. Now that's important because in the Old Testament, that pattern was a little different. And that was love your neighbor as yourself. So breaking this down, what the Bible teaches about Christian love. And I went through several points last time, and so I want to review these this time so we get up to to where we are. I didn't finish all the points. Jesus' command to love in the upper room. That's John 13, 34, and 35. I just talked about this, and there he says, a new commandment that I give you in John 13, 34. It's new. It's for the church age. 1 John 2, 7 uh, John reiterates this, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. Now, he's not talking about Leviticus 18.19 uh, there. He's talking about the new commandment from the beginning of the church age because by this time, it's in the 90s, early 90s. The date of the Gospel of John is not certain. It's somewhere around uh, 90 A.D. So it's been... 60, approximately 60 years since Jesus uttered the command of John 13, uh, 34. So John is expanding on that and because it's been taught now for 60 years. So that beginning is from the beginning of the church age. Second point I made was that the old commandment, and I said 18, 19 earlier, I'm dyslexic in my references, it's Leviticus 19, 18, the last part of the verse, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That was part of the Mosaic law. So this idea of love for others is not something new to this dispensation, but the pattern and the purpose is different. Galatians passages like Galatians 5.14, James 2.8, reiterate that same command. So because it's repeated in the New Testament, it's still in effect. The law ended with the death of Christ. But any command from the law that is reiterated in the New Testament continues. Okay, there's only one basic of of the 
what we call the spiritual laws that are in the Mosaic law, the only one that isn't repeated is the law, the commandment to observe the Sabbath. That was the sign of the Mosaic law. All of the other spiritual or moral commands are repeated in the New Testament. Third, this commandment was addressed to both believers and unbelievers. You're to love your neighbor. doesn't matter what their spiritual status is. You are to love them as you love yourself. And so that refers to anyone, believer or unbeliever. Fifth, I pointed out that neighbor is defined then in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what we see there is love is not just a described in terms of negatives, what it's not. It's not hatred. It's not anger. It's not jealousy. It's not envy. It is something, though, that is proactive. And it's not just passive. It's active. It's getting involved when God brings somebody into the periphery of our life that is in need, then we have the opportunity to provide for them, then we should do that. That is the parable of the Good Samaritan, not to just sort of close our eyes and let somebody else uh, take care of it. That's what we saw there, that there is a proactive sense to the to love. Six, the object of love in the Old Testament was anyone, and the standard was as you love yourself. Now, back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, this got really butchered by a lot of false teachers who came out of more of a metaphysical background and were introducing a new concept into the American culture called self-image, that everybody needs to have a good self-image. The reason we have sin, folks, is because everybody thinks too highly of themselves than they ought to think. Everybody has a really good self-image. Adolf Hitler had a fabulous self-image. I think the, uh, that Rouhani, the president of Iran, had a pretty good self-image until uh, the Israelis blew away the command and control centers of the Iranian forces in the southern part of Syria last night. They attacked 70 different targets where Iranian troops, they weren't, they weren't attacking Hezbollah troops, which are a proxy for Iran, but Iran has troops in southern Syria, and of course last night they lo- tried to lob 20 missiles into Israel. Apparently 16 of them were gonna, going to fall short, so they didn't need to worry about them, but four were going to come into I- Israel's territory, and so they uh, they were shot down by Iron Dome, which is a purely defensive system. Speaking of Iron Dome, if you don't know about Iron Dome, Iron Dome is a, a project that was, a, a lot of it was funded by the United States. There was some cooperative work between U.S. Uh, uh, industry, but it is a purely Israeli development, and it is the ability to shoot down an incoming rocket. These are short-range rockets for Iron Dome. They're coming in from under two miles, okay? And so you have a very short time when you can spot it. You can run the um, algorithm to figure out where it's going to land, and then if it's going to land in a populated area, you can fire and you'll take it out. And Iron Dome has an extremely high rate of of effectiveness, 
there was a, a, a vote held in the United States Congress to provide funding for the Israelis so that they could develop that. In the United States Congress, there were eight congressmen, eight Democrat congressmen, who voted against funding for Iron Dome, a purely defensive military system. In other words, these eight people are people who believe that the state of Israel does not have the right to protect itself from its enemies. Guess who one of those eight people was? He's running for the position of U.S. Senate in Texas. His name is Beto O'Rourke. He's not Hispanic. He grew up in a Barrio neighborhood, and that was a nickname given to him, but he wants everybody to think he's Hispanic so he can get their vote. But he voted against Israel. That makes him, by definition, when you vote that Jews do not have the right to defend themselves, that they do not have the right of self-defense for their nation, that means you're not only anti-Zionist, you're anti-Semitic. And there's no reason you should ever be voted for for any position of leadership in this nation if you are anti-Semitic. So just remember that because there's a lot of people that may be prone to vote for him. And, um, and if you have that little nugget and can express it in a good way, then maybe you'll win a few people to, from, away from the dark side. So anyway... So what we see is is that these people, the, the, the Iranians that Rouhani just waffled today, and he just said, well, we don't want to expand the war any. We don't want to get into any trouble. What Israel did is really an act of love. They wanted to love the, their neighbor as themselves, which means to protect them. Now, we'll see that's a dimension of love that most people don't ever don't ever think about. But in this command, the object of love is anyone. The standard is as you love yourself. Now, now people like Rouhani, as I was saying, would have a great self-image until he got deflated this morning. But every sinner has a great self-image. You don't need to feed that. And back in the 30s and 40s, you had some people. Norman Vincent Peale was one of them. Robert Schuller came along as one of his disciples. In fact, Robert Schuller took... Um, uh, took Norman Vincent Peale's uh, thinking of positive thinking, and he changed it to possibility thinking, but he sent out a book. He wrote a book in the early 80s that he sent to every church in America, for every pastor in America, to change the message of Christianity, and it was called, guess what? Anybody remember what that book was? It was called Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. In other words, the message, as Schuler stated in the opening uh, chapter of the book, it was a great message to talk about justification by faith at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. But we've evolved and changed, and we're a different culture now, and the problem now isn't sin. The problem is self-image. And so you have to learn to love yourself because... If you don't love yourself, you can't love other people. And so you have to first learn to love yourself. Now, this is just heresy. It just violates everything in the Bible. 
Because the Bible says that as a sinner, you're born self-absorbed. You love yourself. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul is talking about how husbands should love their wives as their own body, he then says, for no man hates his own flesh. Now, that's what's called a universal principle. That means no human being hates himself. That just flies right in the face of all this modern psychology built on self-image stuff. And you've seen where self-image takes you now is that that if you're going to play on a baseball team in Southern California, then everybody wins the, the World Series for that baseball league. Everybody gets a trophy because everybody has to have a good self-image, and it destroys competitiveness. It destroys uh, any any sort of motivation to do well, and it, it, it runs in the face of every kind of character quality you need in order to develop a good work ethic and good skills. So this verse, Leviticus 19.18, is not saying you have to first love yourself. It is saying you already love yourself. You were born that way. Now, instead of being self-absorbed, you need to transfer that to your neighbor, whoever your neighbor is. But think about how much you care and focus on yourself and transfer that to someone else. That's the Old Testament standard. So the conclusion in all of that is that that passage, Leviticus 19.18, is directed to unbelievers and believers for application to believers and unbelievers and is therefore able to be fulfilled in a relative sense by unbelievers. An unbeliever is able to love to some degree other people. But the new commandment to the church is quite different. This is the eighth point where I stopped last week. It is addressed to believers only. When Jesus is talking to the 11 disciples that are left in the room, and he says, a new commandment that I give to you, he is targeting the leaders of the new church that is going to come into existence some 50 days later. And he is stating, this is a new commandment for you. It is distinctively Christian. It is distinctive for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, unlike Leviticus 19.18. And it is the unique distinction that all men will know that you are my disciples. And that's because you can't do it on your own. We can't do this on our own. We can't generate, manufacture this kind of love. We all know people who are not attractive to us. We know people that, whose very presence irritates us. We know people that have done things to us, and we have a hard time forgetting that. Only through God the Holy Spirit, only through spiritual growth and spiritual maturity is this kind of love produced. That's what Galatians 5, uh, 21 to 23 is all about. It is the fruit of the Spirit. That is, the production of the Spirit is, first of all, love. Now, why does he put love first in that list? He puts love first in that list because five verses earlier, he has quoted from Leviticus 19.18 and says, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Now he goes on to talk about this distinct kind of love that is the uh, fruit of the Spirit. So that's why it is distinctive. You can't fake it. You can't uh, 
work it out. So it's addressed to believers only. And we notice that when he's addressing them, it's, he includes a distinction between disciples and believers. Now, this is one of those areas a lot of people have trouble with because there are a lot of different commands in the Gospels about if you want to be my disciple. Now, a disciple is someone who's a student, somebody who's growing, somebody who's maturing, somebody who is, who is focused on doing what the Lord wants them to do. And there are various stipulations there for a disciple. But if being a disciple is the same as being saved, then you have a works gospel, that the way you're saved is by um, carrying your cross, that the way you're saved is by leaving father and mother, that the way you're saved is by uh, doing these other things. But that doesn't have anything to do with salvation. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. It's believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. You don't have that kind of discipleship language in the Gospel of John because the Gospel of John is talking about believing, believing, believing. Ninety-five times that verb is used to express the condition for being justified, for having eternal life. But in Matthew especially, but in the other Gospels, the emphasis is on being a disciple. I think when I finish Matthew, which should be in the next probably two or three weeks, we'll finish our study of Matthew, we'll come to what is called the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. The last verses in Matthew is a command to go and make disciples by baptizing and by teaching. So what I think I'm going to do for the summer is do a study on the all of the statements Jesus makes about being a disciple, what is entailed in being a disciple, before we turn our attention to Ephesians. So we must understand there's a distinction between... You can be a Christian and have an eternal destiny in heaven and not be a disciple. But if you are a disciple then you will probably have a destiny where you will be ruling and reigning with Christ because you have rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the ninth point is that the object of the command in John 13, 34 and 35 is one another. We are to love one another, not love our neighbor, which could be anybody, believer or unbeliever, but here it's to love one another. It is to love other believers. Now, it did, I, I've always made the point that it doesn't say you have to like them. Because liking has to do with having an affinity with them. And we all know there are people that it's not that we necessarily dislike them, but we just don't have anything in common with them. But you can still love somebody like that because you know that they also have been saved by grace and they're in the body of Christ and we're members of one another. So we are to do that which... Toward, do toward them that which moves them in the direction of being a more and more mature believer. So that's the idea. We are to love one another, other believers. And the standard then is where it really gets difficult. The standard is that we are to love other believers as Christ loved us. Now, we have to remember a couple of things about this. 
Christ's love for us, the Father's love for us, from the beginning of his plan of salvation was directed towards human beings who were obnoxious to God. They're characterized by unrighteousness. In the Old Testament term, that's the unrighteousness is a filthy rags. They were totally unclean and repugnant to God because they were unrighteous. But God looks past that to what they can be if they respond by faith to the gospel. And if they respond by faith to the gospel, then they are going to receive the righteousness of Christ, which will cover them. And they will no longer be repugnant. They will have been brought by adoption into the royal family of God. So God looks in terms of what they can be, not in terms of what they are. So the unique love of God was demonstrated. Passage we'll look at in a minute, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, while we were obnoxious, while we were antagonistic, while we hated God, think of the Apostle Paul. Well, not only did he hate Jesus Christ, he hated all Christians and was involved in torturing and murdering them breaking up their families, arresting those who were Christians, throwing them into prison, making sure that they were executed at times, and that this was uh, someone God loved. That didn't mean God liked him a whole lot because his behavior was obnoxious to God. But God loved him and did what was necessary to save him and that was through sending his son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so the mandate to love can truly be exemplified by the believer who's advancing in spiritual maturity. Now, as I pointed out many times, as we grow, the Bible talks about having an immature faith or the faith of a baby or an adolescent or an adult. And at each stage, we love others. But when we're an infant, when you're a baby, you love like a baby loves. When you grow and mature, your love grows and matures. There are some people who get the idea that, well, you can't really love God until you become a mature believer, and that's just not true. Just as it's not true that a baby can't, it's not true that a baby uh, can't love until he becomes an adult. A baby can love as a two-year-old, three-year-old, according to the standards of a two-year-old or three-year-old. So the mandate to love is, is part of and is manifested as we grow through the fruit of the Spirit. So let's look at a few key verses. A few key verses. First of all, the one I just quoted in Romans 5.8 gives us a great standard for understanding uh, biblical love. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's a profound statement, because he didn't die for us because we were nice, or because we were such a great personality, or we were going to add something of value to the body of Christ, because 
as a fallen human being, there was nothing of value. Everything that we have that's of value after, after we're saved is the result of God's grace. And this, but this shows God's love. And again, it's the word agape. I pointed out last time there's two different words that are used in the New Testament for love. There's agape and there's philos. Philos is used of a friend. It is the, the verb phileo is only used with the object of a believer. It's never used. God does not have phileo love toward an unbeliever because they're not in the family, because they're not, they ha haven't received righteousness yet. But for them, he has agape love. And that's what we see in, in these passages. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That's a familiar way that it's translated from the King James, but that so is often misunderstood, for, and you've heard people say this, for God loved the world so much. That's not what the Greek says. The Greek uses a distinctive particle there that means God loved the world in this way, indicating that now, after it says in this way, it's going to tell you how God loved the world. So God loved the world in this way. He gave his only begotten son. He was willing to relinquish that eternal relationship with the son so that the son could enter into human history, add to his nature, human nature, without diminishing his deity, and to live in the midst of of the filth of corrupt sinners so that he could die on the cross for our sins toward a greater goal of bringing us into union with God and serving him for all eternity. So God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son. So when we talk about loving people, and you can think about people you know that have mistreated you, abused you, lied to you, deceived you, insulted you, whatever it may be. And yet, God's love is demonstrated here at the cross to people who hated him, said horrible things about him, lied to him, abused him, blasphemed him, all of these things, yet that doesn't affect the initiative of God's love toward saving them. So he said his only begotten son that whoever believes in him made it the simplest it could be. Some people think that belief has to be difficult. You've heard people, you explain the gospel, they say it's too easy. Well, if it's really that easy, why don't you do it? It's because they don't want to. It may appear easy, but it's not necessarily easy because it runs counter to sin nature. But it's easy because people think, well, i got to go do something. Well, if you do something, it doesn't add any value to, to faith because what you're saying when you try to add something is that what Christ did really wasn't enough. I've got to add something from my life that's going to make Christ's work better. But the reason Christ's work is the best and the only valuable work is because it comes from Jesus Christ who is without sin. Anything we do, even the best that we do, is comes from a corrupt sinner. 
and therefore it is not does not have uh, any value to God. It has to be Christ alone. And so it's just simply believe, believing in. And in the Greek, this is a verb form, pistuo eis, that is functionally equivalent to believe that. See, some people want to make an issue. Well, you just believe that Jesus died for your sins. Well, study the grammar, study the syntax, study the meaning of words, and, and you'll discover that scholars again and again say believe in is the same as believe that. It is trusting that Christ died on the cross for your sins, and the result is you won't perish eternally, but you will have eternal life. Now, another couple of verses are found again in John and then in 1 John. John fifteen thirteen says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. Now, that's not making a statement that the unbelievers are friends. The noun there is philos. It's not saying that. It's just making a statement that, that in human experience, when somebody gives their life for somebody else, that is the ultimate in love. We sacrifice ourselves for somebody else. And then we take that human analogy and we put that on what happens at the cross, because that is the greatest love, where Jesus Christ became a man for the sole purpose, ultimate purpose, of dying on the cross for our sins. So that exemplifies love. He died in the place of those that hated him. He prayed there on the cross, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. He is loving those who are beating him who are whipping him, who are insulting him, and he is not retaliating in thought or word or deed. That's love. 1 John 3.16 states, we know love by this. So how, how are you able to identify love? It's a hard word to define. There are several words in Scripture that are hard to define. On Tuesday night when we've been studying about worship, holy is a word that's a bit difficult to define. But I think that, and and glory is going to be a tough word to define also, but love is a tough word. We study this word and we understand its characteristics and qualities. We can say what it is and what it isn't, but it's really hard to define it. I know this because for a number of years I worked on a doctrinal dictionary with a really tough editor, and um, constantly you write a definition, but it ends up being a description. And only if you've worked with lexicons a lot do you understand that there's a difference between a description and a definition. And that may go past some of you, but that's okay. What you have in Scripture, though, and we'll get there in 1 Corinthians 13, is a description of love. And that's what we have in Scripture is pictures and adjectives that describe love. We know love by this. Here's a picture that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We ought to be willing to give our life for other believers in 
a, and it's a sa- sacrifice. Now, sacrifice doesn't mean that you feel like at the time, like, uh, like you're get, making up some big sacrifice and you're giving everything up. But it is when you are doing something for someone else rather than that which you would prefer to do, that's when it becomes a sacrifice. And if you're a mature believer, you may not even think twice about it. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. What I'm saying is again and again and again, if you're going to use the word love, the Bible says there is a template for love. And that template is what happens at the cross. And that's where you have to start with love. You don't start with how you feel about somebody. You don't start at the, at a human level of experience because everything in our experience is corrupted by sin. You start with what God did through Christ on the cross. That's the template. And whenever we make comments about, well, I love you, that has to be at the core. And when you get over into Ephesians 5, and you're talking about the commands to husbands to love your wives, what is the qualifying phrase that comes after that? Wives, you already know what this is. You don't need to tell your husbands. This is, this is the test for the men. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. See, that's the mandate for the guy. And that's tough because the pattern for your relationship with your wife is Christ's relationship to his church. And what we read here is we know his love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That is also the pattern for the love in marriage. Second John 1 6 says, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Now this is bringing to bear a totally different idea to love. We think of love so often as simply an emotion, a feeling, something like that, an appreciation. But what we see here and in a number of passages in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament is the Bible gives us a barometer, a metric for how do you measure your love. You measure your love by being obedient to God. Now, see, some people would say, oh, now you're being legalistic. Well, don't, I'm not being legalistic. Argue with what the text says. Jesus says the same thing in the upper room. I, I made the point last time that, that the upper room discourse, that is Jesus teaching to his disciples in the, during the time of the Last Supper, uh, where he washes Peter's feet, gives him the new commandment, then starting in John 14, 15, and 16, he describes a lot of things that are going to change in the church age, that he's going to send another comforter, all of these things. That that in in there in John fourteen he says, if you love me you'll keep my commandments. Hmm, that's not legalism. Said the same thing in Deuteronomy. How it was Israel going to show that they loved God? Love me with your whole heart and keep my commandments again and again. We'll look at some of those verses in a minute. So this is love that we walk. Walking is just a figure of speech, a way of talking about the Christian life, that we live our life according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. The commandment is to love one another. 
So you walk in it by being obedient to the Lord. So it's not primarily going to be vertical. It's not primarily going to be focused on other people. It is primarily horizontal. We love others because God loved us first, and we're loving them because that's how we serve God. So, as we look at this, what I want to do is look at a few other passages emphasizing this. Turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22, we studied this probably about a year ago in our series on Matthew. But in Matthew 22, we have a question that is being asked by a hostile legal expert that is, he's an expert on Torah, probably um, a Pharisee, that we, because we read in verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, that is, they tried to present an argument, Jesus silenced them, they gathered together. Then one of them, that is one of the Pharisees, a lawyer, he is an expert in the Mosaic Law. This guy could have recited every verse in the Torah without missing anything. You could punch a hole through a Torah scroll and he would be able to identify every word that, that, that was intersected by that punch. That's how well they knew the Torah. So he comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, he's not telling him anything new. That The Pharisees understood this already. So Jesus is, as it were, passing the test here. What is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. So it starts with love for God. The point that I'm making here, when we talk about love, we can't talk about horizontal love for one another without understanding that that is based on that love for God and God's love for us. Jesus said this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus is stating that all of the Mosaic Law, all of the Torah, in fact, the entirety of the Old Testament, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, that all of the Old Testament is rests on this presupposition, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength in the original. There's a funny word there used in the Hebrew, and it sort of goes beyond any possible vocabulary word. It's sort of like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and you know, just implying everything you've got. It, it, it's hyperbolic. It goes beyond just, just what is stated in the other words. It's just everything. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is then to love, the, love your neighbor as yourself. So it starts with understanding God. And that means we have to go back to a basic concept that is the integrity of God. Now, what happens in 
the influence of liberal theology, the influence of people who approach God on the basis of their emotion and their emotional concept of love, is they always ask this question, well, how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire? How can a loving God let the Holocaust happen? How can a loving God let this person in my life die? How can a loving God let me get fired? How can a loving God let? And what are they, what really comes after that? How can a loving God let something happen in my life that runs contrary to what I want to do, what I think is right? I mean, that's really the bottom line. How can God love me and have me lose my job? God must not love me. It's a very narrow, self-absorbed view. Now, granted, there are issues in history and in life that are much, much larger than that. How in the world can a loving God let people destroy themselves in a worldwide cataclysm like World War II? How can God let people destroy and murder so many people, not just Jews, but gypsies and Jehovah's Witnesses and homosexuals and all kinds of other unacceptable people during the uh, world war that the, the Nazis slaughtered in the Holocaust. How can a loving God let that happen? Well, maybe you need to evaluate your concept of love. And what they always come back to is that, so, and you'll hear people say this, well, in the Old Testament, we see this God, and he's just a God of, of righteousness. He's a judging God. But in the New Testament, it's a loving God. It may surprise you that in the Old Testament, there's a lot of emphasis on God's love. And they always want to set up this contradiction that between righteousness and love. And what has suddenly happened in Western civilization and in American culture over the last hundred years is that love is being redefined as permissiveness, you know, to let people do what they want to do. Love is described as permissiveness, and we've seen this, I think, in the post-World War II generation, the baby boomer generation, what you saw is the influence of Dr. Spock on, on parenting, that you don't spank your kids, you don't discipline your kids, you just let them be who they are. Well, he had no understanding of the sin nature, and the role of parents is to teach their children to restrain their sin nature. And so... There's no standard, there's no moral standard that children are held to because at the presuppositional level, there's a conflict that they can't resolve between righteousness and justice and love. And yet what we see in Scripture is that righteousness and justice and love are not incompatible, but they can only function when they work together. Because if you have a concept of righteousness and justice and no love, then there's no grace, there's no kindness, there's no gentleness. You just have harshness and tyranny. But if you have a love without standards, without justice and righteousness, then the result is pure permissiveness and everything just falls apart and you have no standards. That's where we are in our culture. One of my favorite verses from the Psalms is from David's meditation on the Davidic covenant in Psalm 89, where he states, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. 
mercy and truth go before it. So the picture is that what is the foundation of God's throne is righteousness and justice. Righteousness is the standard of his character. Justice is the application of that standard to his creatures. That's the foundation of God's throne. He loves righteousness because he is righteousness. This isn't the only place where that principle is stated in the Psalms. But the outworking of that justice is defined in terms of two other words, mercy and truth. Mercy is grace in action, and truth is related to reality and the foundation of God's faithful character. The words for truth and faithfulness are, are come from the same word in, uh, in Hebrew. So this is the foundation. So we see in the character of God that when we look at the ten attributes we have emphasized, that God is sovereign, he rules over all of his creation, God is righteous, that his very character defines what right is and what wrong is. He is the standard of righteousness. And justice is the application of that standard to his creatures. And love fits in complete compatibility with his righteousness and justice so that those three go together. He is eternal. He, he is without beginning and without end. He is omniscient where there is nothing for him to learn. He knows everything that can possibly be known. He's never learned anything because that would indicate that he was less than omniscient at some point. He always has known everything there is to know, everything that could happen, everything that will happen. He is omnipresent, which means he is fully present to every atom in his creation. He is omnipotent. He is able to do whatever he wants to do to accomplish his purposes. He is truth. See, there's another attribute that fits with righteousness and justice and love. And he is immutable. He is unchanging. That love does not increase or decrease. It is the same in an infinite intensity for all of eternity. So when we look at the integrity of God, we see the highlighting of these four attributes, and they're often emphasized in Scripture as they are in Psalm 89. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your, uh, of your throne, and mercy and truth go out from it. In Psalm 11:7, we're told, for the Lord is righteous. There are some statements in Scripture that say God is something. God is love. God is holy. Here, we, God is righteous. He is righteous. He doesn't conform to an external standard of right or wrong. He is righteous. It is his very character. He is so perfect that his character defines what is right and what is wrong. The problem you get with fallen creatures whether it's you or me or unbelievers, is we constantly think of God as being here and some standard being here, and God has to conform to that standard to be righteous. How human, how corrupt. The standard that exists is God himself and his character. So whatever God does is right. 
Now, a problem we run into in the way Satan has distorted the thinking of our contemporary generation is they are defining certain things as being right. And if God is, if the God of Christianity doesn't affirm those things and doesn't validate things, then he's not a good God. You know, you have to validate somebody in their sin, in their homosexuality, in whatever it may be. You have to validate that. And if you don't validate it, then you don't love somebody because love is permissiveness. And permissiveness means that you're going to agree that whatever it is they're doing is good because they're, they're, they're doing it. There's no sense of justice or righteousness. There's no ethical standard that's involved with it. But Psalm 11.7 says, for the Lord is righteous. The second thing he says is he loves righteousness. God loves righteousness. That's his attribute of love. And it is focused on that which is righteous. God cannot have a relationship with creatures that are less than righteous. So God loves righteousness and his countenance beholds the upright. And then in Psalm 33, 5, we read, he loves righteousness and justice. That's the same thing we saw in Psalm 89. He loves righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice is the foundation of his throne. And then there's an outworking of that, that the earth is full of the goodness of God, even an earth that is fallen and corrupt. We see evidence of the goodness of God day in and day out. This is his integrity, his righteousness, his justice, the outworking of his love and his and truth. Psalm 97.2 says, Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Once again, that principle is reiterated. And then when we get into the New Testament, we read also that he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, knowing God, as we've studied many times, remember Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father, and Jesus said, have you been with you so long and you don't know me? Well, Philip's a believer. So knowing Jesus and knowing God are not synonyms with being saved. They're synonyms with not growing as a believer after you're saved. So that's what John's getting at in 1 John 4, 8. He who does not love does not know God. You haven't grown out of your spiritual infancy. For God is love. Therefore, if you're going to really know God and grow and mature, you're going to exhibit that love. You're going to understand that. 1 John four sixteen. we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love, that's fellowship, that intimacy with God. He who abides in love abides in God. Now, as a believer, you can sin, and your life may be characterized by your sin nature as being selfish and carnal and self and hating and jealousy and all this other stuff. We'll study that a little more when we look at the 1 Corinthians 13 passage. But we either abide in Christ or we abide in the world. And John 15, Jesus says, abide in me for I abide in you. It is a choice. It's a, it's an option. You either abide in Christ, which is fellowship or not. And the way to recover when you stop abiding in Christ is to confess sin, walk in the light, but you can walk in the darkness. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter five, your children of light walk in light. Because sometimes we walk in darkness. And in First John, walking in darkness is comparable to not walking or not abiding in Christ. 
Psalm 146.8 says, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. So that's the integrity of God. And we are. I'm going to stop here, and next time we're going to come back to look at these Old Testament examples of God's love as it's expressed through the Mosaic Law. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded of your immense, infinite, eternal love, and that your object, as you look at a fallen human race, the object of your love was to do the best for us, which meant solving the sin problem. You sent your son to die on the cross for us that by believing in him, we could have eternal life. And nothing else, we don't do anything to improve it. But you loved us while we were at our worst, and that becomes the pattern for us loving one another. Pray that you would challenge us, transform us, and help us to understand that this is a product of walking by the Spirit, but we are called to love one another as our Lord has loved us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.